Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, boss man. Tenth try. Having a little technical problems here. I am here. really running out of steam over here. I don't know. It's 2022. I'm tethering to my wireless. I trust my phone more than I trust the old internet infrastructure now. Well, we're going to talk about cities and infrastructure today, my friend. And you're not having a good streak, as far as I can tell. Your catalytic converters have been stolen multiple times in your current city. <laughs> Your Wi-Fi is questionable. Guys, I'm going to have to circle back on my Austin review. Give me a few weeks on that. I'm in a dark place right now, but I'm excited to be here on the podcast for a Turkey Day pod. I thought about as we were constructing all the topics we're going to talk about today that it's too bad we're posting this on Turkey Day, Thanksgiving Day here in the United States of America. Our greatest holiday, our greatest legacy globally is bringing people together over nothing but food and booze. If you're anything like me and you don't watch football, although I'm coming around to the idea, at least on Turkey Day, maybe you listen to podcast. So happy to be there. Well, there there you go. The hardcores are here with us today, and we appreciate it. Today, we're going to cover a bunch of topics, Ian, but specifically what makes a great city for digital nomads. We're going to talk about operational excellence and the difference between traction and scaling up as a conversation that's been going on a lot in our community. And finally, does traveling help? or hurt your business, along with hiring operators. So lots of topics. Stick around for that and more on today's pod. Every time I think that I'm the only one who's lonely, someone calls on me. So Ian, recently I was surfing around the Dynamite Circle and there was this post. And Justin Tan, who's been on the show recently and who has been a really big part of our story in 2022. Justin's been a customer of a lot of our brands. And there was this moment in the middle of the summer where he sat us down in our office and he gave us the business. Anyway, he's in Mallorca right now and he posts in the forum and he says, man, this is going to be like the next. In fact, let me just read what he wrote. He writes, Mallorca is hands down the next digital nomad hub in Western Europe, relatively cheaper than the mainland, great beaches, hiking, weather, food and cafe culture. I'd rank this over Barcelona so obviously, Ian, I was triggered. I'm going to have to come up with a whole episode to refute right. this guy. <laughs> Justin Tad, you're going down, man. You and Mallorca, I hope you all sink out there in the Mediterranean. But I really thought, I don't know about Mallorca. I don't think it's going to happen. And so it got me thinking a couple of things. Number one, what makes a great digital nomad destination? And number two, what are some of the underrated or up-and-coming digital nomad destinations for 2023? So I posted this in the forum, got a lot of great responses, but I thought it would be cool for me and you to start from kind of those first principles of what actually digital nomads are looking for in a place. And then we can decide whether or not Mallorca is part of that. It fits into that. I have a list of three things that in descending order, power ranked, if you will, that what digital nomads look for. The number one is lifestyle quotient, value in lifestyle. At the $3,500 to $7,500 in USDs a month spending. 
And when I say lifestyle cushion, I'm talking about things like eating out. I'm talking about things like having a rent in a center of a cool neighborhood. I'm talking about access to many things to do. And I'm talking about services like maids, nannies, laundry, internet, stuff like that. So lifestyle quotients, number one. And I say 3,500 to 7,500 because we talk all the time about baselining and cost, like baseline affordability on this show. But in reality, I think a lot of that is like masochistic worst case thinking. Like entrepreneurs always believe it's going to go to zero. And so thinking it's going to go to zero in a very affordable place is a comforting thought. But the reality is people are spending money in these places. If you're making $80,000 a year from a remote job in America and you move to Thailand, your spending might remain exactly the same. What goes up is your lifestyle quotient. Okay, so number one, lifestyle quotient. Number two, other nomads. One of the reasons that I think that Mallorca might not take off is culturally, there's not a lot of there there. Like nomads tend to adhere to places that have a little bit more cultural richness or like kind of a momentum entrepreneurship in a city. And Palma just isn't quite that. It's hard for me to imagine like enough momentum of people hanging there that it would ever actually fit that number two qualification, which is other nomads. And then finally, I have weather. I think it's just typically people are going towards sunny and south when it comes to nomadism with a few exceptions to that. And I'll say honorable mention, time zone. It is interesting to see that disconnect between what remote workers want and what digital nomads or what location-independent entrepreneurs want. I think amongst remote workers, there's a really strong take that places in Latin America are incredibly strong for the remote lifestyle. But a lot of entrepreneurs are like, hold my beer, let's talk about Asia. But I think they have different time zone requirements. So lifestyle quotient, other nomads, weather, honorable mention, time zone. A couple other things that was pointed out by producer Jane, who's an experienced digital nomad in her own right. She talked about much more logistics focused things like ease of visa. There's an excellent thread I'll post up in the Digital Nomad subreddit about basically every single visa globally. And so visas are a big issue we haven't talked about yet. Logistics and airport level of accommodation, those, that would be Jane's list. One of the things I just want to point out, some of the responses of the experienced digital nomads in the Dynamite Circle. The first response was by a gentleman named Edmund, who writes, Chiang Mai is still underrated, in my opinion. So we're talking about underrated spots for 2023. It's the GOAT, greatest of all time, the Michael Jordan of digital nomad cities, if you will, for a reason. Connected international airport, big city services, and small town feel. Cool, relaxed people, blazing Wi-Fi, low tax, no CFC laws. The tax situation alone is incredible in Thailand. So he's talking about visas and the things that Jane was pointing to. I had a sneaky answer myself, which was exactly Edmund's answer, which is, I still believe Chiang Mai is underrated. It gets shade because it is always there in the top five conversation, but having the opportunity to go back to Thailand and talk to literally over a hundred people who are going to Chiang Mai and talk to them on the phone in the past few weeks for these kinds of three or four categories that I'm laying out, I do think that Chiang Mai is still underrated. Tommy Griffith. My man came in with New York City, and I think he could be right about New York City too, but I just want to point something out about like New York City and what I'll call like these first tier cities. 
And this is something that came out like in the pandemic for me is like everybody in New York City that lives in like a one bedroom closet, basically, relies so much on the infrastructure of the city as it is like their living room or their extended apartment. So meaning like it's okay to live in a small place in New York because you're like never there. You're using the rest of the city to extend your living area because there's so much infrastructure. So in that sense, I think during the pandemic, a lot of people fled New York because they couldn't use these public spaces and realize like, oh, this is a problem, right? Like when I don't have access to my second living room, like I can't actually live here. Mm, Well, the pandemic is over. And so people are actually able to use these public spaces. But it got me thinking about it in the context of this conversation, Dan, which is how could New York City, and I kind of agree with Tommy, how could New York City be a top digital nomad destination? And I think part of the reason is because in these cities that have super, super rich infrastructure, meaning like decades and decades of history, you have this massive infrastructure. So meaning you have parks, you have restaurants, you have public spaces, all the things that we think about in like a major metropolitan city, London, New York, Los Angeles. You have places where you can flaneur. You can just be, you can sit, (laughs) you can watch. And New York is one of the best cities in the world to do this. So got me thinking. Great flaneuring location, as Nassim Taleb recently pointed out on Twitter. Yeah, and that's kind of got me thinking about that too, is reading his tweet, is you can live really well because you are living off this infrastructure that already exists. So I like compare that to Austin, right? And in Austin, there's some of that going on. Like there's definitely some like green space and parks and whatnot. But for the most part, if you want to participate in city life, like you have to do it on a commerce level. Like you have to buy something to participate because this like rich infrastructure doesn't exist. So Austin is tough for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is because you basically have to pay for everything that you participate in. In New York City, I can make a whole day. And in fact, one of my favorite movies, Half-Baked, Dave Chappelle does make a whole day going on dates, trying to spend as little as he possibly can. Watch the master at work. You look great. You look wonderful. Thank you. You know what? I was thinking it's so nice out. Want to go for a walk? Yeah, sure. You go for a walk. Good. Good. Let's. So far, so good. I actually lived it a few weeks ago when one of my bank accounts was down to a low amount of money. And so I literally... (laughs) was going around with that little ticker in the bottom right of my mental screen, knowing exactly how much. And I hadn't felt that way (laughs) since I was like in college. And it was cool. I remembered Half-Baked and Dave Chappelle. And I was like, I'm going to make this thing work. We got a new sponsor, everybody. It's Content Refined. Are you a website owner who doesn't have the time to manage your sites? Whether you have an affiliate site, an e-commerce store, or a website dedicated to your business, Content Refined can help. Content Refined provides hands-off content management, a dedicated project manager and editorial team, keyword research and content planning, high-quality SEO-optimized content, and publishing to your site. And what's better is they offer a free consultation to review your site's goals and create a long-term strategy for content creation. Their goal is always to increase your organic traffic and keyword rankings. And because you're listening to this today, Content Refined is offering a 20% discount 
to TMBA listeners. Just go to contentrefined.com slash TMBA to claim your discount now. That's contentrefined.com slash TMBA. And a big thanks to the team at Content Refined for sponsoring the TMBA podcast. One of the things that digital nomadism does is it separates career and earning and not completely, but it disconnects them from the quality of a city itself. And that's why this conversation gets so, so interesting because so much of the case for so many American locations, North American locations, is your job. Like you go there because you can make this kind of money. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. You go to a place because not necessarily it's a great city, but because there's a great job there. There's great opportunities there. Now, all of a sudden, I think what you're describing, Ian, is just a great city. Now we're asking ourselves, if you separate out the earning part, what makes a great city? If you hang around in the Barcelona subreddit, you get this question all the time. You get someone who's like, hey, I want to move to Barcelona. Just give me the business. Is this place good or bad? And everybody says the same thing. Okay, a little bit of pickpocketing here and there, a little bit of you know particulate pollution. There's some downsides. But it's like, it's basically the best city ever. It's amazing. If you're thinking about a city, this place is great. But there's no jobs. And all of a sudden for digital nomads, it just doesn't matter. And that's pretty cool. And I think that's why this conversation is so alive. Speaking of a place with good jobs, back to the forum here, Noel Andrews writes, London, we have swanky cocktail bars, the relaxed pubs, every type of food you could possibly want, except spicy food, by the way. International connections to pretty much everywhere, beautiful parks and outdoor space. And we have an awesome DC community that meets up regularly lives here year-round, and tempts many more in throughout the year as well. So one of the things I'm hearing, you know, Noel's saying it's all about the people. And that's kind of my initial reaction to the Mallorca thing, which is I think about Palma as a city, and then I think about London. And it's like, well, yeah, man, London's a great city. People want to be around that. They're willing to pay extra for it too. Same with New York. Same with Barcelona. So I think this idea that, you know, digital nomadism is about finding the cheapest places some of those places that are just that, that have been asserted, like one of the places, Ian, that's been asserted since day one is Da Nang, right? Everybody's like, why doesn't everybody live in Da Nang? It's freaking cheap. It's got all the platform. It's got everything a digital nomad will want. Well, it doesn't have something important that London has, which is that, that they're there, that great cityness. Da Nang's not a great city. Da Nang's a great platform to spend not a lot of money. It's almost like there's these bifurcation, like you you don't want to live in a place like Da Nang, but you might want to go there to launch a product or write a book. Right. Quick story. When we were in uh, DCBKK, we were having a private dinner and I think there was, what, 20, 25 of us there. I think we had a $1,500 minimum spend basically to like reserve this space, you know, Mm. and like food and drinks were in that minimum. And so, you know, we're like halfway through the night, we'd already been there for like two hours, maybe food and drinks have been served. Everybody's having a good time. Just out of curiosity, I asked the waitress, where are we at on our spend? She pulls out the iPad and uh, lo and behold, we're at $800. 800. I want to say like drinks have been served. Everyone's had plenty of drinks. Food had been served. Everyone had eaten. And so a, a moment of panic struck over me here where I thought, how are we going to get to this minimum? We just can't give it away. So of course, in all of my bravery, I ordered dessert for everyone and more drinks. The punchline of the story is like, 
just amazing. We're on like the 50th whatever floor in Bangkok. Yep. If you look around, you could be in New York. I got to say, on the other side of the pond here in Austin, you're like the omakase for two and like a Japanese whiskey that mentions moss peat kind of stuff away from that $800. You're just like a couple of those whiskeys away from the $800. Meanwhile, we're literally at just this incredible world-class venue with great service, great food, great drinks. We're stressing out about how much money we can spend here. You might do that one time in New York per year. So the value starts to come into question and also like your relative wealth to a location, I think, Dan, starts to come into question, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm actually starting to question that right now in Austin. When I moved to Austin, like I was on the upper end, so to speak, of like how most people were living here. And now in 2023, almost, I'm, I'd say, smack in the middle somewhere of the way people are living. And so essentially what's happened to me in Austin is like, my experiences like at these restaurants and whatnot, they've actually decreased because I'm not willing to spend as much anymore and the prices have increased. So my experience level, I think in a lot of ways, is going down from when I first moved here. Yeah. There's that hipster band of like finding places before they're cool. And part of me, you know, we were talking about this underrated list. There's all kinds of wonderful options these experienced members are giving us Hoi An, Vietnam, Florinopolis, Brazil, Porto, Montenegro, a fantastic place for women in particular, Kate Hill is saying. Prague jumps off the page. And then there's a lot of talk about Phuket. Phuket's getting cool. Like there's like a kind of a Bangkok meets the island sort of vibe in Phuket. One of the things, Dan, about these American cities is like they're capitalism based, right? the dollar is what moves things forward. And you can see it in the way that we're building and the restaurants that we're eating at. When you look at a city like Barcelona, the city itself has to serve the locals. Like they demand that it serves them. And so although there are options that are outrageously priced, the majority of the city serves the locals that live there. And because the city is relatively large, meaning like if a bunch of digital nomads move there, it wouldn't really impact it much. It will continue to serve like the local population. In a city like Austin, where capitalism drives everything, like it's just pushing people out that have been here for 20 or 30 years. You want it capitalism during the day, socialism at night. That's what I'm hearing. Correct. (laughs) Well, I think it's one of the things that's like preserving some of these cities. I'll make this point again too, which is like in some cities... Digital nomads don't impact it at all because the cities are so large. Yeah. Whereas in Lisbon, for example, it does because there's not a great right. inventory of accommodation. So I do think that that's one of the factors. I mean, I love this conversation. Thanks to all the DCers for weighing in. My two underrated spots are Chiang Mai and Mexico City. If you want to get ahead of the curve, you're still ahead of the curve in both of those locations. Final point is like the visa situation matters. Like, it's very hard to live in some of these places long-term, depending on where your passport is from. Spain is supposed to be coming out with a digital nomad visa in January. We'll see if that actually happens. But Mm -hmm. I really feel for people that come to America with this dream and then, like, they don't get their green card, but they've, like, built a life here. And then they're, like, spit back out to wherever they came from. I'm starting to feel a bit of that, too, which is, like, getting really attached to a place like Barcelona and then understanding the friction that it would take to actually live there full time with taxes and all this stuff. Like it's almost impossible to do it. 
at least like legitly. So it's one of these things like it really matters where your passport is and like what the country's capability is for like having you there. Although we're like staring at this list of like 50 cities, like there's a lot of friction involved in actually committing to one of these places, especially if you want to do it long term. All right, guys, next topic. What are the differences between traction and scaling up? A topic that I wanted to talk about anyway, but it actually popped up in the DC. And I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity for us to reflect on these two different operational systems, especially given we've been doing a personal deep dive. We just got spit spat out of kind of our introductory scale up master course thing. It's really expensive and really eye opening. And we had previously spent a lot of time thinking and, and working in traction. And it's just been a theme of the year. And so I thought we could talk about the difference between traction and scaling up. Now, first, why do these systems exist in the marketplace? I think what you have in the entrepreneurship community is a lot of accelerators and funds. And the idea is that if you want to start a startup, you go to an accelerator, you go to a fund, you go to a code camp, whatever, and you get your money and you see if that idea gets product market fit. And then on the high end, you go get your MBA or there's like an up and out culture in a lot of corporate consulting and in the business world. So if you want to go high end, in other words, the path is pretty legible as well. But sort of in the middle, like say you build a little product or you start a little agency and it's like the kind of folks that listen to shows like this and it's like, okay, well now it's working. I'm doing 50 grand a month. I've replaced my professional income and now I've got this new responsibility that I didn't really plan for, which is, you know, I am an operator of a business and there's not a lot in that middle. There's a lot of things that focus on personal growth and industry growth. So you can get like life coaches, you can get business coaches that come in and challenge you to be a better version of you. You can go to conferences that expose you to like best tactics or things like TCBKK. But when it comes to business building itself, the fundamentals of what it means to manage a team, for example, to hire somebody, to develop a strategy and find alignment with others, traction and scaling up are kind of where everybody converges in our niche. And I thought part of the theme of 2022 was us parsing through this and figuring out what, is it, what does it really mean? And one of the ways you can think about these two different systems is sort of like Google versus Apple or like Dungeons and Dragons versus Axes and Allies, if you want to go that direction with it. Like scaling up is the original dog and it came from the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. And the idea is that like, it's kind of intellectually open system like Linux, like Google. We don't really care how you use Android, you know, customize it, move your things in and out. And then traction comes along with a stronger perspective, focused on smaller businesses and says, look, here's what you need to do. Like, forget about reading all these other books and busying your brain with all the hiring best practices. Here's how we're going to go about hiring in this organization. That's a little bit more like traction. So scaling up is an open system. Traction is a closed system. So here's the things they have in common. They're both designed for basically when you kind of things get complicated and it can happen at different levels. I've heard all different kinds of rules of thumb. I've heard a million dollars for traction in sales. I've heard $3 million in sales for scaling up. I've heard when you get more than eight employees, 
they both take specific energy focused on business building and, and a skill to implement. They both have built up a trained industry of certified implementers around them. So we recently hired one of these trained implementers to implement scaling up. And interestingly, very experienced, been doing it for over a decade. Our run rate is 2 million right now. And we were the smallest client they ever had. So I think that that is indicative of the scaling up audience that we were both sitting there and our coach was like, so are, are like you guys like the full executive leadership team? <laughs> we're like, <laughs> like, yeah, this is it. I mean, no one's ever called me an executive before, but thank you. But it was kind of interesting that like often he'll be joined around the table by like six or seven or, you know, like a whole team of executives. Whereas traction is that, that break in the church, that Protestant to Catholicism, if you will, that kind of said, well, what are we going to do for the smaller companies that really just need to be told what to do? And the bottom line is that they both have really good ideas that can help your business. So we talked about the similarities. We talked about traction. It's sort of like, it's more prescriptive. It's like, look, you run a $1 million business, you want to get it to 10, like do this. Whereas scaling up is like, hey, uh, there's all these great things that you need to do. I've heard traction implementers say you can kind of get a light version up to speed in six months, whereas I've heard a self-professed scaling up cultist, someone who completely believes in the system, in other words, loves it, implemented the system enthusiastically for two years and didn't finish. And this is a common thing. The trick seems to be, well, there's all these amazing things in both of these systems. And the trick is figuring out what is the right time for your business to do these different things. The final piece I, I noted here is the viral concepts. This concept that Traction came up with the visionary and integrator. If I had a nickel for every DC member that said, I'm looking for an integrator, mm -hmm. I'm, like an integrator is a whole thing now. It's a viral concept that I think we need to flesh out exactly what an integrator means. But for the sake of this show, let's just call it a COO. That's an integrator. And the viral yeah. concept from scaling up is, I think, the Rockefeller habits, which are a set of 10 habits that you rank yourself on. As founders of remote companies, we all face hiring challenges, like hiring today instead of next week or next quarter, scaling our teams quickly, and even just defining what we want in a candidate where to find them, how much to pay them, and how to recruit them. There's a lot of questions. Hiring's complicated, but it doesn't need to be with RemoteFirstRecruiting.com. It's a service from our team where we help founders like you solve these hiring hangups. Even if you're not hiring today, you gotta take advantage of our 15-minute free strategy call. It's with our senior recruiter, Greg Valentine. He's not a sales guy. He's a senior recruiter, industry expert, and he's helped place hundreds of remote candidates and companies just like yours. He can discuss with you the patterns we're seeing in the marketplace, share with you case studies, and talk about how you can build a rock-solid hiring strategy. Hiring doesn't need to be hard. Let our team do the heavy lifting. TMBA listeners, take advantage of this strategy call. It's a simple way to grow a better business. So head on over to our site, remotefirstrecruiting.com, where we believe hiring the right talent is the best way to grow a great remote business. Schedule a call with our team today at remotefirstrecruiting.com.
the reason the integrator in the COO is like such an interesting position, Danny wrote a book about it and touched on this, but you didn't use the word integrator is because our peers that are building these businesses are finding out that maybe they don't want to run it indefinitely. Mm. Maybe their skill set was starting the business and getting it up to speed and now there's this cash flow, but I don't want to sell it. What do I do? Well, you hire a COO, you hire someone to run the day-to-day of the business. So that's why I think that that integrator buzzword is going uh, around so much is because a lot of our peers that have been doing this for 10 years are now finally at the point where they need that person so they can either step away or start something different. Many, many years ago, we did a podcast called If It Makes You Money, You Shouldn't Be Doing It. And you should dig into the archives if you want to hear some old school TMBA. But we really talked about process and work the system and building a strategic operating document for your company and all that. But, you know, it's a much different thing when that strategic operating document manages $600,000 of revenue or $400,000 versus $1.5 or $3.5. And all of a sudden, the types of people that are managing those cash flows changes pretty dramatically. And I think what we're seeing is the latter group in our community seeing that like, well, just having a strategic operating document and processes, that's not enough. You know, you need something with more horsepower. You know, you need something that manages the business, not only people, but processes. And that's what these systems promise. Can I quote a little bit? And again, this will be a, a continual theme on the show. One DC member writes, we decided to implement traction because that seems to be a slightly simpler model, more suited for smaller businesses. That same author says, I personally liked the book Scaling Up More. Personally, I feel that way, Ian. Uh, Scaling up feels more intellectually honest to me. Traction feels like a forced arbitrariness, which I understand the value in that too, where we don't care if like these things are true, you're going to do them. (laughs) But that's definitely the tone of the books where scaling up is like, hey, if this strategic exercise is making a big difference in your business, you should follow up with these four books and these four processes and like this will be an ongoing thing in your org much more suited for people that have a lot more intellectual horsepower in the business. One other author writes just how much value they've done in just doing the basic meeting rhythms, scaling up. Uh, Founder Vern Harnish said that the most underrated system in a business is a daily stand-up, which is something that is like a lot of us listening to this, actually people just turned off the podcast. (laughs) Even the suggestion of a daily stand-up as a system (laughs) is certainly something that we've personally rejected, Ian. One other author writes that I initially found Traction to be the light version. Once I got past some of the cartoony clip art, I felt it more approachable for smaller teams and more mission-driven founders. The system in scaling up is probably more tuned into having a very strategic view and building plans based on that. It works even if you don't have 100% of the components in place, which helps since some of those feel that they're aimed at enterprise. That's one of the things we found Although this process can be really daunting, even having some of the systems in place has been incredibly empowering for us. And if I had to describe the experience, it reminds me of what Jesse Schoberg said recently on the show where the CEO's job is really about existing in the polarities. You want to do the high-level work and then you want to obsess about the details. And that kind of ping-pong back and forth is what I feel like is an enforced process in the scaling up process. So you're defining 
things like your 40,000 foot view, your three-year goals, your 10-year dreams, your personal goals, and you're then working into the details of what that means, like what people, what meetings, what metrics, what cadences, what yep. key projects. And it's this just enforced discipline that I find really empowering. My main emotion after having gone through this is calm. I feel calmer because we have defined what we're doing, why we want to do it, what our strategy is to do it, and then who's responsible and how we measure that. Coming out of this scaling up thing for me, Dan, it was like, it was a bit overwhelming for sure. I can understand why people feel like this is aimed more towards enterprise or larger organizations. And that's yeah, because it is. It is. Like it's infinite, the amount of like process and metrics that you can put in your business. Every, every page and exercise will like F up a total month for you, basically. Yeah. So you just have to choose which page wisely. Correct. But for guys like us, I think that that's great because I just want to see it all. Like I want to know that it exists. And then mm. when the time comes for me, like I can implement it in my business. So for me, like going through this process, like we probably did like, I don't know, in the two days, 10 exercises maybe that were based on like mission vision values or KPIs or goal setting or org chart type things. And I think, Dan, like not all of those are going to make it into our business. And I think that that's okay. But I, I do like to know that they exist. And I also like that even though it was super, super expensive, even if like two of those things made it into our business and made a difference in our organization, like it was totally worth it. The other thing that I'll say about this is like anybody can read these books and then anybody can like implement the ideas. But one thing that I found nice was like having someone there with us to help us make sure that we were doing the exercise correctly. Because in, in a lot of cases, we weren't. Well, one of the big challenges with this stuff is implementing it then with your team. And so if you don't understand it, and your team like doesn't fully believe it and they ask you a question and you're like, I don't know. Like that process isn't going to take hold. That's one of the big challenges here is coming to the org with force, you know, and confidence and understanding. Also humility, but like just really an understanding that's hard to get if you just read the book. That's, I think, what you're pointing to in part. We just did some of the exercises wrong if mm. left up to our own devices. It's not that we like didn't understand them, but maybe we didn't understand the intent and like the, how they fit into like the bigger part of the picture. So I found it really helpful to do the exercises with someone because again, like we were exposed to a bunch of exercises and now we get to pick and choose based on the way that we filled it out. So mm -hmm. I felt like in a lot of ways, like we condensed it by having a facilitator help us. I agree with that. I might mention like the narrative of how this came about just to give everybody a sense. Like about this time last year, I started writing our annual review and goals and we wanted to quadruple in 2022. Now that didn't happen. But in Q1 and 2, we started to double. We were growing quite a bit. And it was when we were in Barcelona over the summer. It's almost like the metaphor of the wood shop. As the product founder, you're kind of in there with the jigsaw and there's sawdust flying everywhere and you start to put your products up on the windowsill. The wood shop's a mess, but you're making product. And it was kind of around the summer where we're like, man, we got to clean up and see what's happening here and figure out what to stain, what to finish, what's the focus. 
And so that started with us with our accounting system, getting solid bookkeeping, that which led to a financial pro forma, which informed potential strategies. So now we have a pro forma. Now we're saying, oh, well, that's going to change our strategic view. And so now we have something to show to third parties. So now we're bringing coaches and consultants in. And that allowed us to put some of this rubber to the road. Now we're going back to our staff with metrics, centers of accountability, and we're like, okay, well, we need a system around all this. And that's what ultimately led us to things like traction and scaling up. And there was also, you could see like, I'm looking back this year, we talked about Amazon six pagers. I'm working on our first six pager right now. We talked to Eamon, who helps companies go from seven to eight figures in an episode called Who's in Your Van? So Eamon's really talking about team composition there. We talked to Jason Long. So it's all kind of coming together. You know, we doubled this year. The wood shop's messy. We're trying to get clarity and focus so that we can double again next year. And so I thought I'd just tell that story, especially because in true Gonzo fashion, we want to do it with listeners of this podcast. So in December, we're going to be putting up a website called dynamitescale.com. We have found an amazing integrator, if you will, to partner with us. And we want to dog food a program that takes the best and most relevant parts of the best thinking out there in programs like Scaling Up and Traction and try to really inject it at the right time in the right business and to take on that challenge. And so it's one of the more exciting things we're going to be doing next year. If you want to hear about stuff like this, stuff we're doing, the best way to do it is to either email us directly or go to the website tropicalmba.com. We'll send out newsletters about all this stuff. This is going to sound kind of brash, Sam, but like I think a lot of people are in our position that we were in with our last business, which is like you kind of trip your way to a couple million dollars in revenue. It's like, oops, now what? You know, for us in our last business, we just petered out. We just straight up petered out. And that's when you wrote the book. And that's when we sold the business because like we had cobbled together some ideas and like, a, you know, we had a team of 10. We we're making this like couple million bucks a year, but like, we couldn't take it to the next level because we didn't have these tools. We just lacked clarity on how to systematize the business and bring in professionals and like take it to the next level. For us, it was like, we'll, we'll probably look back and say like, that was one of our like major career failures is not holding on to that asset and that cash flow. The other thing is like, when you go to scaling up stuff, a part of I mean, people might say, okay, well, why don't we just do scaling up? And it's like, well, that's not our crowd, right? Like, Literally, like it takes three years to implement this stuff. That's a little bit over-engineered for a two, three million dollar cash flow, potentially. And so the challenge is, is like, well, what works for us? And I think building a laboratory, a collective wood shop, if you will, is going to be a really interesting thing to do. So we're going to start with 25 companies in January and see where it goes from there. Final question I'm just going to ask at the end. Neil Parekh tweets, he says, Hill I'll die on. Growing your business and traveling are not mutually exclusive. In 2015, I left my 200000 golden handcuff corporate salary to travel the world full-time. That same year, my business grew from three sixty dollars to $720,000 a year. Neil Parekh believes that traveling doesn't need to hold back business growth. What say you, Bossman? I think us, the listeners of the show, the majority of the DC, all living proof 
that that can be achieved. Yep. 100%. Let's go travel. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks for joining us on the TMVA podcast. That's it for this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.